0: Hello and welcome to the D2C podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Before we get started with today's apparel podcast with Jacob Rokic, fractional CMO, I wanted to just take a quick moment and make a request to the D2C listeners. We know we've got thousands of D2C listeners out there who get a lot of value from the show. And if you're one of those listeners listening right now, I want to give you a personal mission of helping us find new listeners. We wanna grow the podcast as much as we can this year. And I'd love your help doing it. So if you love this podcast, take it on as a personal mission to get one other person to listen to the D2C podcast, someone else who either wants to build a business or is building a business, building a career in this world of e-commerce digital marketing, bring them in to the D2C family do me a little favor. Thanks a lot. Now let's get on with this show. Today we are doing a deep dive on some of the best practices on how to build a lasting brand in the apparel space with e-com veteran fractional CMO Jacob Rokic. Listen to this podcast and you'll learn all about smart inventory management, omni-channel approaches that brands of any size can execute, how to structure your meta ad account in our creative as targeting world, as well as scaling your business as well as your career thoughtfully and lots more. I hope you Enjoy this one on with the show. We're looking at the
1: personalization more even in the retargeting side. So someone's come to the site, they've engaged with either a category or a specific product, but they haven't made a purchase yet. How do we keep that customer engaged on that product? So how do we start telling that story on one product specifically? So not just dynamic ads like, hey, you looked at this shirt, come check out this shirt. But hey, you looked at this shirt, did you see that we have five other colors? Did you know that this shirt is sweat wicking and you can put it in the wash? We've seen examples from Viore. They do a great job of this. If you look at one of their joggers, they have tons of products but like, if you looked at one of their joggers, you'd actually get retargeted with specific ads for the jogger for the next 10 days. And so I think personalizing creative that way based off of you know, the potential customer is one way we're
0: working on that. Creative minds, math-obsessed media buyers, to ship more winning ads, you need both worlds working together. Introducing Thumbstop, the weekly newsletter by Motion that covers the art and the science of creating winning meta TikTok and YouTube ads. Every Sunday, you'll learn about the science. Think about CAC and contribution margin spreadsheet tutorials, advanced ad analysis techniques, and interviews with elite media buyers. You'll build your analytical skills every week. The art. Creative cheat codes, winning TikTok ad formats, interviews with creative directors. You'll get practical ideas to ship winning ads faster and new ways to fix the brand performance divide. Subscribe at motionapp.com forward slash thumbstop. Nice to be in contact with you. I like, let's just kick it off. I think I got an intro to you from Joseph Siegel from Feasible. He's like, you got to interview this Jacob guy. He's uh, a master marketer. We did a pre-interview and we went deep on your experience in apparel. And I'm really interested. It's one of my favorite categories personally. And I'm just, you don't have to give up your, your big idea. Cause I know you're working on some ideas right now, but if you were starting an apparel brand right now in 2023, what would be, what would be really top of mind for you about how you approach that?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think um, apparel is an awesome, a great space, and if you do it right, like margin margins are great, and and I think everyone wants it and, and needs it. I think there's some ways that make apparel really tough, things that make apparel really tough, right? You're holding on to tons of inventory. Uh, It's pretty seasonal a lot of times. So you don't want to keep stuff. A lot of times, you know, you're keeping stuff on your shelf and you don't want to keep it there for six months or a year. And so you have to get rid of things. And so I think um, to combat some of that, I think there's some interesting things that when it comes to production, um, so like, you know, how you, if you can do made to order or if you can do, you know, order things and get them 75% of the way produced and then like do that last 25% after orders were placed or once you know sort of the demand for something so I think there's some creative ways you can do that depending on what the what the apparel actually is or what the end product is so I think that's one thing I think planning and buying and, and really forecasting I think can make a huge difference and so I learned a lot at um, at Anina Bing when I was there in house and we had a, an awesome CFO and he he taught me a lot and you know pushed me a lot but also taught me a lot about um, you know thinking you know we were doing forecasting 15 months in advance every every month 15 months in advance because we're doing our buys nine to 12 months in advance and you know, really understanding, okay, if this is how much demand you think you can drive on both the e-commerce and the retail side, then let's look at where that, where that comes down to from a, a product or a skew uh, availability or skew, you know, how you buy it. Um, I think what we also did is we were doing that. And then we also coupled that with really understanding our, our evergreens, sort of like our always on styles that we knew were going to do really well. And we had this f- function really caught like ABC and other brands do this too. I've heard it, but A's were our things that we knew were going to do great proven bodies, maybe in a different color or a proven body. So let's just say, you know, a t-shirt that's, you know, this this fit, but yeah, so it's a proven body, but let's do it in a few different colors. So we know that this shirt, this sells really well, but we haven't tried, you know, a gray or a green or a brown, right? And so like, you know, you know that that's your A style. The B styles were things that you that you believed in, but you weren't sure, uh, you know, as much as the A's. And then the C's were maybe some things that looked awesome. They might be like higher fashion, more, a little bit more um, progressive, but uh, you wouldn't buy as heavy in those. And so I think just being really smart about how how you buy in plan
0: and then on top of that you've, you've got all those different styles and then you have four or five different sizes within each of those as well so that complicates things
1: yeah yeah right so like basics you're extra small to, to extra large it's say on the standard right so um, that's one thing if you're looking at shoes it's even larger if you're looking at denim it's even you know it's even bigger and so yeah, i think you have to be really careful
0: okay so we're gonna be really smart about our inventory and i liked your point about being able to Meet the market where it's at. Be a little bit more bespoke. I think the word bespoke came from this idea of tailors. So this idea that you could actually order clothes that are, you know, maybe even like, like what is it? Like Son of a Tailor does really well with that, where you kind of go. You in order to buy, you kind of have to go through their bespoke funnel. So you just you see that being a big opportunity for brands in the future. Is that is that because uh, production, you know, apparel production is really innovating, and and is is that one of the reasons that becomes more more possible?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I think Bespoke is is interesting. I think it's hard, right? Indochino is like, you know, there are men's suiting and they do some women's stuff, but like they're actually very much like made to order and they've done it at a larger scale. I think it's hard to like, how, how do you do the volume and how do you scale that? I think that's the biggest problem when it comes to that. I think there's also some like in between, right? So there's a suit supplies, a really good example. I think they've done a really good job of like, you know, you buy it off the rack, but you customize it in the store. And so like, you're not doing a completely custom thing, although they offer that, but like they have the same suit, but you can pull in the, the legs, you pull in the back, you maybe add something and they're doing a lot of that, you know, with their tailors in house. So that's sort of the, like middle ground when it comes to, like, let's say suiting. Um, I think there's some other things in when it comes to, like apparel manufacturing, which is like, you're using the same let's say the same yarn or the same material and you're using that across a bunch of different skews or, or bodies and then you're cutting it and you know exactly what you need, but like you're you're saving that last 25% for, you know, stitching, embroidery, branding, some other things, and like the custom stuff that like, you know, you could, you know, do it across a, a, a few different styles.
0: Very interesting. And the other piece to me is is brand. I've been thinking a lot about Aviator Nation. I had them on the podcast a little while ago, but they basically make like I don't know, like I'm wearing a champion sweatshirt right now. I'm sure their stuff is a little bit better feeling, maybe Hangs a little bit better. It says higher quality things, but this, you know, cost $30 or something like that. And one of their t-shirts will cost, you know, 250. So they've done such a good job at anchoring that brand into that high value space. What, what do you have to say about brand and, and value perception?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's huge. And I think people will spend the, spend a little bit more money for, for brand. Um, I think it's also, Sometimes lightning in a bottle, right? There's some really great brands out there that haven't been able to make it because there's just so much to choose from, and I think that's why apparel's so difficult. There's just so much competition. Aviator Nation, they were—they've been at it for a long time, and it, I live in Southern California. You, it's been prevalent here for 15 years, I, since I, since before that. So it's always been here, but not across the rest of the country. And so like, it took them a while. I mean, you know the story, but like, yeah, she didn't—they yeah. didn't sell and make what they made over the last few years you know, it took them a while.
0: Um, And it's a great story. And they kept at it. And it's an omni-channel story too, right? And they did omni-channel in a really smart way by turning their boutiques into these like really high-end experiences as well, right? So they took a really unbeaten path there. But I think that, and and by being very localized, as you say, right? Like things like Las Vegas and California and just like a few, it's like Hard Rock Cafe of apparel, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the the store experience is really cool. And uh, you know, it definitely has a vibe, and yeah, you want to go in there, especially if you're traveling and not from California. If you're in California, it feels like you know, you're walking in. They have one on Abbott Kinney, which is a, a very cool place in, in
0: LA and Venice, and it's just a very cool shop. So, so you work as a fractional CMO for a few apparel brands. Um, what are you? What What are some of the big themes you're seeing with apparel brands like being hyper relevant when it comes to the marketing side of things?
1: You know, I think omnichannel is definitely something that can't can't be left un- unseen or that rock turned over. And when I say omnichannel, I mean, you know, meeting that customer where she wants to be or where he wants to be. You know, I think we all love the, the idea of D2C. I've been in D2C for 15 years, um, love to own that customer experience, love to be able to have someone's email address and have my own communication with them. But the customer also wants other touch points. And so I think it's important to try to, ma- you know, meet the customer where they want to be. I think there's some smart ways to do it. And so when we talk about omnichannel for apparel, right? It's, D2C, so on your own.com. It's uh, potentially through wholesale partners. So there's the big guys, right? When it comes to apparel, there's you know the the big box, the you know, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, uh, Saks on the high-end side, you're know, selling to them. There's also the higher-end marketplaces that are D2C, so the Fetches and the Essence's and and those. Um, and then there's your own brick-and-mortar retail. And so I think those are the, the areas that you think about. I think there's a smart way to do it. Again, we did it pretty smart when I've been in-house at places. And I think also some of the brands I'm working with, you do it in a smart Way. Do you do you launch on Nordstrom as an apparel brand or in Bloomingdale's? Do you do it in every single store that they have? I mean, that might cannibalize your direct-to-consumer business, and I think there's a way to be smart about it. Maybe you're just opening in ten Nordstroms and ten Bloomingdale's, and they're at their like you know their top locations where you know your customer is, or they're in locations where you don't have a retail presence, perfect, you, your own retail presence, and you're using wholesale to sort of be you know, be that that canary in the in the coal mine, right, to, to find if you do have an audience there and let wholesale sort of run instead of opening your own retail, you know, you can let them be go first, right? Dallas, Texas is a great idea. I worked with a brand that didn't have any presence in, in Texas at all, and they opened with Nordstrom, which has a great presence in Dallas, and then they saw that they had a huge audience there. Then they opened up two retail stores in Dallas like three years later. Um, so I think there's some really interesting things that you can use that to your advantage um, and also be
0: smart about it. So within the digital realm what when you when you bring clients on for growth what channels are you advocating as like a, as like a must uh, on the digital marketing side I guess it's brand specific but
1: Right, I think we're in a lot of the usual spots. Right? We spend, you know, a majority of the budget on, on Meta. Um, spend a, a lot of a lot of budget on Google. We actually saw this year Bing has been picking up just because they're, you know, they're they're um, partnership with with ChatGPT and and all that. So that's been interesting. And then, you know, we're testing on other platforms all the time. So we're we're pretty bullish on connected TV. So we work with, um, you know, we work with Mountain a lot. If you know that they have some um, pretty interesting targeting options, and I think that's that's really interesting. We, you know, we're we're pretty bullish on TikTok. It serves a place and a purpose. I think it's pretty hard to keep up with the content. So I think the you know we go into it and we work with our brands and, and work with our I've worked with partners. I'm like what does this look like? Um, what does this look like for the next three months? Because you can't just like tiptoe into it. TikTok eats up content. Um, we we're trying out Pinterest, right? And so how does Pinterest work when it comes to apparel? I think if the brand what we've seen is if the brands really. Has a great presence organically on Pinterest that the paid works even better. If you're not if you're not that active organically on Pinterest, you're, you you still do paid, but I think it doesn't definitely doesn't land as well. Um, so that was an interesting learning over the past I'd say like 12 months is like a brand we've been testing multiple brands on Pinterest for you know you know doing that and the brands that have it, a big organic presence, their performance is much better on the paid side.
0: Reminds me of Reddit. I know Reddit. Like if you're not if you're not a redditor, if you don't have Reddit credit, and you try to go do ads there, I find that can be really challenging.
1: Yeah. Also Reddit. If it's not your audience and in not, general, yeah, they'll they'll eat you up. So,
0: yeah, 100. percent What are your opinions on Amazon and apparel?
1: Yeah, you know, Amazon made a big push into doing you know th- the commoditized stuff, the basics. I think Amazon is doing, and they'll continue to do. I think it's they were really trying to make a push into into fashion. I don't know, was that like five years ago, where they had like Amazon luxury, and I don't, I think you don't see that as much anymore. Um, I still think that Amazon doesn't do a great job of having personality with brands. So when you put your brand on there, it's really hard to have the personality of the brand uh, come across. And I think a lot of us use Amazon for the things that we love about it. But I still think that, again, you meet your customer where they are. Um, I'd much rather sort of shop a curated collection on a brand's website uh, when I'm, you know, trying to figure out what it is versus like buying a pair of socks. Uh, You know, I'll buy a pair of socks anywhere. Um, Well, I'm very particular about my socks personally, but uh, just an example. But when I, you know, Todd Snyder is a brand I really like from a menswear brand. If that was on Amazon, I would never shop it. It's not the type of curation I want. They don't do the collections, they don't do those things. And so I think Todd Snyder, which also shows, sells Champion and they have a cool collaboration, you'd see that and it sort of like comes off the page and you don't get that with Amazon. So I think
0: brand doesn't come across. It's pretty commoditized, pretty commoditized experience. But I always, yeah, it's always interesting. There are some brands I do like that do sell on Amazon and, and it's just becomes such an easy thing to buy there. So you mentioned in the pre-interview as well something about media mix modeling, which is something we barely talk about. And I know that that's sort of like a, I I've, I've had heard different opinions on it about like it's really only valuable at like a really incredible scale. I'm just curious how do you how do you build media mix modeling into your mindset with uh, all these channels?
1: Yeah. So, um you know, I think we started doing it on a smaller, more manual scale um, where I'm not sure if I'd call it completely media mix modeling, but it was it was sort of like the base of that, right? Without using machine learning and all that stuff. And so I think you and I talked about this is like, what do you do in a cookie-less world, right? As we start moving more into this cookie-less world, like, what do you do? And, and the way I look at it is new customers and acquisition and then retention. I think there's two ways to look at it. So as it relates to acquisition and where you're putting your media dollars, I think we have to be smarter about understanding the relationships between where we're spending the budget and the dollars and and what happens. And we used to have attribution that was much better. You knew that when you spent, for the most part, like you'd have some pretty good. If I spent, you know, a thousand dollars, I knew what happened to that thousand dollars and the people that it drove and what they did. Now, when you spend a thousand dollars, you probably only know about 30% of them or whatever the number is, it might be less, but you know know about what 30% of those dollars did and and what they helped drive. So I think there's being able to do some correlation analysis is a thing that we do a lot. Um, and so correlation being things like, okay, we're going to do something here. We're going to understand a baseline. So set a baseline of whether it's traffic coming from a specific source or, or a specific geography. Let's let's establish a baseline and then let's start doing some small hypotheses and hypothesis testing. So let's increase our spend here and let's see what happens across different data points. So one, did brand search go up when we increased our top of funnel spending? Did the brand search in specific area go up So if we do micro tests, you can look at geographies. So let's look at San Francisco and Los Angeles and Dallas. And let's see what happens when we increase top of funnel spending in those areas only. And let's see what happens to brand search in those areas. Let's see what happens to traffic in those areas. Let's see what happens in the first week, in the second week, in the third week. And let's start to understand that correlation between increases and incrementality in spending and, and other things. So I think that's like we can all do that. Like You don't need to have machine learning and a data scientist to, to do that. I think you can get a little bit more sophisticated and start doing regression analysis where you start understanding how all of these data points working together will actually help you know up your line and what happens to that line and so understanding like, the deviation. So I think that's a little bit more complex. And then I think you go to the next step, which is there's some things that we're working on doing. It's some more like media mix modeling and, and we're bringing on some data scientists to help like build out this sort of machine learning idea, which is how do you do micro tests and a bunch of them in, a, in an hour? or in a day, instead of waiting, you know, a week to understand data and whatnot. You can do micro tests on on certain things. So we're trying to play in that space. And I I think that is one way of the future.
0: That's super interesting. It's, it's such, it's an interesting time with meta ads because it's still this hyper uh, effective and uh, by far the biggest uh, volume uh, in terms of the ability to, to reach people. Uh, it, the, the, the targeting has been degraded in, in some ways, which is something else we talked about. And so there's, there's these other ways that you can sort of structure what you're doing, whether it's, you know, measuring things on media mix modeling. How do you advocate uh, structuring Facebook accounts these days, meta accounts?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So I think um, we're still pretty bullish on breaking up the funnel, um, understanding net new customers who've never heard or, or potential customers. So prospecting, um, having this middle of funnel. So these are customers who have potentially heard of the brand so they've engaged with an ad they've been to the website they put something in their cart right so we like to break up the funnel between cold and and warmer in the in that middle of funnel um and then down to sort of retention right and so we're pretty bullish on breaking things up in the funnel in that way um the reason being is, is i'd say two or threefold right first is um, so, we know how we're doing across each part of that funnel. And we can actually gauge ourselves week over week, month over month, and, and understand sort of differences of, of efficiency within the funnel, cost within those uh, different areas of the funnel, um, what it costs to get someone to engage with an ad, and you can do some comparisons. If you're just throwing everything together, it's a little bit harder to have a benchmark. So, from one thing is just understanding and being able to analyze. The next part is creative. So, you know, someone who's never heard of your brand before, telling them about how, you know, the cost and the effectiveness and the value propositions, that might not be as enticing as like making, you know, having a a stronger sort of brand uh, message, right? Having that more sort of ephemeral connection with somebody or that sort of, that deeper connection with somebody that they they feel and they have a, um, you know, a response emotional to the response brand. to, yeah. Emotional yeah. response to the brand, yeah. Um, and I think further down the funnel, I think you start testing out what works, right? So there's value prop messaging. Whether it goes from apparel, we I work with a lot of skincare brands, right? So value prop really matters there. It's clean, it's green. Doesn't there's no redness? So how do you like, communicate that? The cost. So I think there's a lot of things in the middle of the funnel that someone might not have responded to higher up on the funnel. So creative is a big thing for us as to like why we break it up that way.
0: One of the themes that keeps coming up uh, on the podcast is just personalization as well um, with that ability. And I think it's probably even more, apparel is a, a such a personal uh, item, multi-skew in most cases. What what do, you, what do you advocate when it comes to personalization in terms of like, do you like, to, I, I just had this idea that came up, come up on the podcast the other day from Sean Frank about how he, in their marketing funnels that, you know, people get these objects of desire for his Ridge wallets or whatever. And then after 30 days in funnel, he like liquidates that funnel and, and sends them a product specific, like hyper big discount for a specific product and then kind of gets them back into the overall mix. I'm curious, how do you approach like personalization when it comes to uh, probably, I guess, you know, retention on, on the re- retention side of things?
1: Yeah. Uh, so we're we're looking at the personalization, I think a little bit more even in the retargeting side. So someone's come to the site, they've engaged with either a category or a specific product, but they haven't made a purchase yet. So we're actually working on How do we keep that customer engaged on that product? So how do we start telling that story on one product specifically? So not just dynamic ads like, "Hey, you looked at this shirt. Come check out this shirt." But, "Hey, you looked at this shirt. Did you see that we have five other colors? Did you know that this shirt is, you know, sweat wicking and it's dry fit and you don't need to. You can put it in the wash." and all these things, so really going down the level just on that specific shirt. We've seen examples from Viore, they do a great job of this. If you look at one of their joggers, right, you can see the jogger and they make sure, they have tons of products, but like, if you looked at one of their joggers, so they call like the core jogger or something like that, you'd actually see get retargeted with specific ads for the jogger for the next like 10 days. And so I think personalizing creative that way based off of you know, the viewer, uh, you know, like potential customer, I think is one way we're working on that from a creative and targeting standpoint.
0: We, we talked a little bit, we teased a little bit about inventory management. It's something, you know, as a, you know, coming from the agency side of things, now a media company, we don't handle a lot of inventory and forecasting. I, I wanted to dive back in a little bit. Do you have any actual like strategies or frameworks that you use to kind of avoid overbuying or underbuying? Good forecasting.
1: And there's two ways that, that I've done in the past. And uh, I think you can do this d- despite, you know, regardless of what, um, vertical you're in. So, um, the the bottoms up approach which is like what you know what are the building blocks of your revenue it's new customers and repeat customers and i think if you're if you're um understand your repeat customer rate and how often they repeat so looking at i like to look at it from a cohort standpoint so when a customer first became a customer and then how many times does that customer come back over let's say a 12 month time period um i think you can get down pretty close to like what your repeat revenue will be over a 12-month time period, right? If things don't change drastically, if you have a similar inventory mix, if you are coming out with the same sort of newness, you know, if you're spending the same, doing the same on the, on the retention activities, like for the most part, retention is a pretty a scientific approach, right? So you're just looking at cohorts by the date that they came in, so the month that they came in and understanding repeat rate. And then you can sort of look at your, you know, each month, how many new customers you're bringing in and you apply a repeat rate to those customers. You can look at seasonality and you could look at some other things, but like 12 months, I think it's pretty scientific. Then you layer on top of new customers. And so I think that's where it gets a little bit uh, more art and science, which is understanding, you know, if I want to scale, if I were to spend, let's say, 20 or 30 percent more than I spent the month before, how does that affect my CAC? Right. CAC meaning the blended CAC. So. If I spend, if I have you know this much spend and I brought in this many new customers, here's my blended CAC. How does that how does that change as I spend more money? And so that's where you know the art and science I think start to come together. But that's one way to forecast. Um, really understanding sort of customer, new and repeat customers, and then you back into you know how many orders they're going to place, what your AOV is, what your units per transaction are. Then you can really get down to like, okay, how many units, how many SKUs do I need to have, uh, or how many units of each SKU do I need to have? So I think. That's one way to go about it. You can also go sort of, I call it bottoms up, or you go top top down, which is um, understanding your traffic, um, taking a look at new new users or you know new visitors versus repeat visitors, understanding the conversion rate and and how they you know with the difference between new and repeat conversion rate on a on a visitor basis, understanding the AOV of new and repeat, uh, and then breaking that down into a similar way. So I think there's a couple ways you can do it, and you can also that top down, you can really look at channels. So. Um, Are my organic channels bringing in most of the repeat customers or the new customers and understanding like where you need to push and and what you need to do, what levers you need to pull. Um, And that helps on sort of the marketing side.
0: Very cool. And then of course you throw in Q4 planning as well. Apparel is probably one of the biggest impacted. Uh, verticals when it comes to Q4 like ad spending and growth. I think I've heard the rule of thumb that in in, in some brands, you know, Q4 you makes as much revenue as the other quarters combined. Is is that something? What what do you what do you sort of see in terms of how big a deal Q4 is for apparel brands?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a it's a huge deal. I mean we've already started prepping for, for Black Friday Cyber Monday. Uh, we started two weeks ago. Uh, we created a cool checklist and all these things that what you do on the retention side and some things to think about. And so we've been working with brand with our brands and with you know some of the brands that I consult with and getting people prepped already and, and what's the offer, making sure we have enough inventory to support it and and all of that. So yeah, it's huge. I think it's getting bigger and bigger. I think there's no secret that, you know, Black Friday Cyber Monday used to be you know, four or five days long, right? He used to start on, on Thanksgiving Day maybe, or the day after, and he used to run through Monday at the end of the day. I mean, the last, I'd say, COVID, but even before COVID, I mean, it's now running all of November. I mean, people, we have brands that are starting the first week of November, you know, a few days after that, whatever it is. And it's like, everyone's doing that the whole month of November, they're on sale. So I think it's becoming more competitive. Um, It drives up prices on the platforms. I think customers are now also trained, right? I think a lot of people, I think this October will be really interesting to see how many people are shopping in October, full price. You know, I think the, people are anticipating, like, why am I going to spend my, if I've got, you know, a thousand dollars to spend on on something new, I'm not going to, I'm going to wait to November because I know there's going to be 20, 30, 40% off. So, yeah, I think it's going to affect everybody.
0: It's going to be an interesting Q4 this year. Uh, I know Prime Day, I know there was a number of a number of like leading indicators so far like that that it looks like it'll be, you know, just as big of a Q4 if if not bigger than before, but I think that's a really key point. That's something the that team at Pilot House talks about all the time is just making sure that your offers are really tested in these months and weeks ahead of time so that you know how to how exactly how you're going to word it, what you're going to be offering, what how how you word your discount so that when it's time to go you're just you're ready to to spend.
1: Yeah. Where do you where do you do your shopping at? Where do you do your apparel shopping at?
0: It's funny, I just bought a nice fall outfit from one of my favorite retailers called um, The Last Hunt and they sell high-end like uh, sports gear and just dice apparel as well it's like a marketplace but they sell it all at like 40 it's it's like last season stuff so it's all like 40 or 60% off or something and I just always go by biggest discount I feel like that's a big miss for apparel companies that they don't have that on their filter options Filtered by big I, I guess a lot aren't discount brands but filtered by biggest discount I like especially ones that have lots of inventory I want to go find like the really high-end stuff that's like 90% off because it's got a, a crazy color that I happen to love that's that's what I'm on the last hunt for
1: I like it I'm gonna check it out and just add it how about you um well right now I'm going I'm going to a wedding in, in Italy and we're first trip without the kids for you know after, in like three years so we're going to so I'm buying a, a linen suit which is nice so um oh nice doing that suit supply so I'm a big fan of theirs um what else? I'd l- I, like I just top. bought
0: linen bedding from a previous podcast guest, by the way. And I feel I've, I, I I went down some rabbit holes on like linen as a fabric and like how it like helps with like human resonance. I don't even know if it's true, but like I'm a big I'll linen buy, fan. So I'll buy so into that. Yeah. Yeah. I like uh, it. My yeah. Taurus field is strong.
1: I like Todd Snyder a lot, which is a, a cool brand out of New York. So, um, you know, they're doing some cool things. Um, you know Ministry of supply who I, who I love a lot so if you're looking for that work you know they're a cl- they're a client of mine and um, just love working with them the team's just so sharp and MIT grads who sat and basically backed into like how to create the most breathable fabric that you don't need to take to the dry cleaner that is stretchy and comfortable uh, but looks super professional so uh, work leisure is what they call it so um,
0: I think their stuff is awesome it's just amazing how fast fashion changes like I Like I remember like three years ago being like I would never wear a pair of jeans without stretch in them in my in my life. And now I I only have like 1993, like 501, like sort of straight leg jeans because you can't can't wear skinny pants anymore like that happened quick. Question
1: is: Do you save it? Are you going to save your skinny jeans? Do you think they're going to come back? Because I got rid of all my like my Jankos and my wide leg jeans from when I was in high school, and now I'm beating myself up because that's those are the jam now.
0: I'm really glad you brought up Jankos because I, I would like to get. I think we need to get Jankos on the podcast. I also I want the last area I wanted to chat about with you was, was celebrity brands because we we talk we've talked a long time about how every brand is becoming a media company. I knew you know every celebrity was going to vertically in, integrate uh, in, into brands. It's been happening a lot. You, you see this trend just not slowing down at all, eh?
1: Yeah. You know, I think we work with, I work with a bunch of celebrity brands, probably six or seven now on the roster. And there's a recipe there that I think works, right? You, you talk to a lot of DDC brands and I think you probably talk to a lot of the ones that are successful and they've been able to find traffic, find product market fit and do all this stuff probably without a celebrity. And I think they're, pro- they're probably the diamonds in the rough. And I think there's a lot of the rough that doesn't make it, right? That you're not talking to. And so I think it's hard. Uh, I think anyone listening to this podcast knows that it's really hard, especially on the DDC side, uh, especially when you're just launching and, and all that. And so I think having a celebrity really helps that, right? How do you get how do you get free traffic? Like instead of paying a dollar per session, right? We're out here spending, you know, spending marketing dollars, paying a dollar per session or whatever the number is to get traffic to your website. Can you have a celebrity that, you know, that is passionate about a brand and that they start this brand, whatever it is, can you help them or can they sort of help drive their 10 million followers on Instagram or something to a website and convert? I think that's the thesis. I think it sounds great to me. So, like for, in order for celebrity brands to work I think there's probably like a, a recipe and I think uh, if I break it down into three things I think that one the celebrity has to have an audience and it has to be the right audience for the product so just because you have a 10 million person audience doesn't mean that the audience is going to want the product that you're putting out there. So I think that has to work. Yeah. That has to be I, the right I've
0: thing. got a big market. I've got a big audience of marketers, but they don't want to buy my collarless shirts necessarily. Although they might. They might. Yeah. Do they want to buy skincare from you or like a vodka from you? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Well,
1: maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe a nice strain
0: I mean, of marijuana. Maybe. Who knows?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think like the right audience for the right product, I think that's one thing um, I think uh, the, the second thing is the product has to be really good. I think it doesn't matter who you are. If the product's not good, we, people see through it. And I think you might have an, an early bump of people that are saying like, yeah, I'll try anything from this celebrity. And then they try it out. And, and if the product's no good, they're not coming back. And so like we all know that in D2C, right? Retention is more important than acquisition. So if you're acquiring a bunch of customers and they don't come back, then like, what are you, what are you doing? Um, so I think that's probably second. Um, I think the third thing is, um, staying focused and being involved. So I think the celeb having the audience, but like them not being involved and like not wanting to do stuff, but like just being passively, I don't know if that works. I think like being really involved is, is great. And so I think you have a lot of sub brands where the celebrity is running things there. I mean, I think Haley Bieber with Road Beauty is a great example. Like she, it is, she loves, that is her, that is her thing. I mean, she's all over the website. She's posting content about it all the time. Um, I think some of the like, you know, Ariana Grande is like, she has a, a, a brand, Called Rem. She's she's very bullish on the brand. She loves it. She is, you know, posting about it all the time, and you can see it on on TikTok and Instagram and all those things. So I think those things are really important. And I think there's other celebrity brands that
0: that you see out there that aren't doing that same thing. So um, yeah. I was gonna ask your. I think that's pretty good. I was gonna ask your opinion on on the best ratio of the celebrity being involved or not and I think you kind of nailed it we we did a chat with Emma Chamberlain's brand and uh, and she's really strikes that 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 uh, balance as well I I just saw that Jared Leto's skincare brand went under so you have to be a celebrity that people really like and don't just like ironically like they like Morbius sorry Jared Leto if you're listening but yeah you have to be you have to be a quality celebrity although I guess every celebrity has some audience right
1: yeah, how deep do you go with them and how much do they trust you? And I think all those things. So yeah, that's probably my, my recipe. And I think there, we work with brands with sub brands that are doing that, right? And they are. And then there's some other brands that aren't doing that. And we've also been able to make it work. But you know, I think those like three things working together is just that's that's hard to beat.
0: Or just be Ryan Reynolds and then everything you touch turns to gold. Like Mountain you mentioned oh, that earlier. Guy. That's one of his companies, right?
1: Yeah. 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 Then he sent sold Mint Mobile, right? I mean guy's just amazing.
0: He's, that's, he's my white whale. He's got, he's going to come. So if you ever get to chat with him when you're in your mountain, once you ascend on the TV ad spending uh, a little bit more, send him this way. Okay. I'll make
1: a deal with you if I get to come on
0: too. Yes. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> you just get to, you can watch. We, we have our 50K question and I, I'm i sure you've got, you're working with brands that are spending a, a lot more than that in, in a given month or whatever. But I, I'm if we were to give you a, like just an incremental $50,000 budget for one of your brands, where would you right now kind of deploy that to see the biggest return in the short term?
1: It's a hard question. I mean, so many so many caveats and uh, qualifiers, right? So what's the brand? What is their product? Do they
0: spend? Okay, well, pick, pick a brand in your your mind, so pick a product what would yeah, you do yeah so
1: if they're if they weren't let's say they weren't spending any money this is just 50 50k um so a brand that's spending 0 dollars spending 50k um you know i think i think meta and google are still sort of the powerhouses i think um, you know, finding new customers on on Meta uh, across the board. There's so much learning. Also, you can get so quickly. So if you wanted to understand uh, messaging and creative and all that stuff, 50k is a lot of a lot of budget oh to God. really understand that. I mean, you could do a test for a thousand dollars and get so much learning from a thousand dollars. So being able to test ten different images with five different pieces of copy, you could do that with you know, a tenth of that budget uh, and really learn a ton. So I think like Meta is so powerful and can't be dismissed ever. Um, I think Google is, you know, a little bit of pay-to-play. I also think you know, we're seeing a lot of success with Performance Max. Um, I think the machine learning and algorithm that Google has is, again, unfortunate. That they're or whatever they're in, you know, antitrust lawsuits right now, but not for Performance Max yet. Uh, but they're, you know, it's a, it's amazing, and they do a great job. And the companies just, you know, this is their premier product, and they work on it all the time. You can tell so.
0: And now they've got the YouTube top of funnel piece, right? Which was something that they had kind of missed in a lot of ways is the actual demand generation. And so, yes, some of the... Are you guys doing much on YouTube? Yeah, we are. Yeah, so for
1: that reason, nice. super cheap cost per views. You're getting people that are actually clicking and engaging. And then you can retarget people that engage with a video or watch a video after a certain amount. And you can retarget them elsewhere, uh, which I think is, again, really powerful. I mean, YouTube, I think, I think this was five years ago, I, I think is still the second if not the third, the second biggest search engine in the world, right, it's Google and then YouTube. So, I mean, if you think of the power that you have of like the amount of people that are there and what they're looking for, it's amazing.
0: So that sounds like your traffic strategy sounds good. What would be your overview of your creative strategy that you'd try to deploy for for one of these brands?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, we're creative, is like we've talked about, understanding creative throughout the funnel is really important. Uh, we're really bullish again on creative and doing creative strategy. Um, yeah, I think we, would do a ton of brand research so the way we look at it is do a ton of brand research really understand the brand the customer and the psychographic of that customer and then try to develop some hooks and angles and i think the brand probably has an idea of what those best hooks and angles are we love to come in and, and actually say all right we're going to do the research we're going to actually give some hooks and angles that we want to test and then we go out and test those things using a few different types of concepts and when i say concepts um, we like to think of creative uh, across a couple different content clusters. So, you know, for a, an apparel brand, testimonials are great, right? So, like, what other other people are saying? Uh, press is like a great concept. So, how do you show that press is talking about this product? Another thing would be like you know UGC reviews, right? Or UGC testimonials. So someone using the product and talking about how great it is and how to use it. So let's say take those three concepts of the things we wanna test. Then we take those, those are the concepts we wanna test. Then we try to understand what are the hero products. And then we start developing content and creative around those things. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. And then iterate. That sounds good. Yeah, iterate. So take that same concept, but test different products. Take that same concept and that same product, test different images, right? So now we're talking about, you know, one one concept five products five different images I mean you have 25 different ads right there so it's pretty amazing you can flip-flop and then test different things right so
0: that fifty thousand dollars is pretty much gone and we're' um, uh, in today's newsletter, D2C newsletter, we actually published something about uh, how emo- like it was a while ago. People were using memes, figuring out how to get really cheap clicks and and views with kind of using meme ads. But apparently, we're we're seeing some success getting images of emojis in your images. So like actually in, like superimposing different emojis in your images in different places apparently is working well right now. Oh. I don't know. It depends on the brand, I guess. All right.
1: Okay, that's a new that's a new yep. thing to throw on. That's a new thing to throw on as the
0: concept. Exactly. Test it out. You got 50k. This is easy, Jacob. That's this has been talking. great. You're giving me you're yeah. giving me
1: ideas. Like this is what we're talking. Yeah.
0: That's that's what it is. You mentioned you have a new Twitter. Where do you think people should look you up?
1: Yeah. You know, I need to I need to work on my on my activity there. But it's uh, J. Rokich, um on on X, if, as they say, and then LinkedIn. Trying to stay trying to stay active on LinkedIn and, and post some things that we're learning. Also, love to to do you know career advice and. Um, you know, things for young young people. Yeah, you know, I actually had someone uh, ask me the other day, so this is the post I was working on yesterday. Um, I met, went out to coffee with a family friend and it was a young uh, a young guy, about 24, so just out of college pretty recently. And he's like, well, you know, if you give me any career, like, what would you do differently in your career? Like, you've done so many great things. You have this, cool, you're an entrepreneur now, you have your own business. and um, you know, what's career, what would you do differently? And I had to think about it and I was like, I actually don't know if I would do anything differently. I think that I'm, I am where I am because of the path that I took. And so I feel pretty strongly about that. I'd say like three things that were really important to me. And and I guess I'll leave you with this just because I think it's, um, I love sort of trying to impart knowledge on some people who maybe can learn something from my mistakes or, or my successes, hopefully, or what, what success you call this. But I I boil down to three things. One was um, have a goal and, and have like a goal of what you want to be. And, and that can change. And I think like I, I actually lived with a guy and uh, when I was 25, we worked together and then we ended up being roommates. And he was always about like listening to self-help stuff and reading self-help books and like working on career development. And he was like, oh, I want to be this. And he was 25. He's like, this is what I want to be. It, whether it's 10 years or 20 years, that's what I want to be. And he actually inspired me to do that same thing. So like set a goal. Um, so when I was 25, I was like, I want to be a CMO. I want to be a CMO of a company. And that was my goal. And so I took, you know, you can take five different paths to be a CMO. And to be honest with you, I think that changed for me because CMO now is actually a little bit of a different role. Like I think the roles that I've taken are the same as a CMO, right? I was almost GMing e-commerce business at a new and took on another fashion brand and now, you know, fractional VP of growth or fractional chief digital officer effectively the same thing as a CMO, just the company is a little bit different and it has a bigger reliance on data and other things. But like that goal of being CMO gave me some purpose and some things that I was driving to. So I just, I really love that. And I, I sort of told him that and it can change. So I thought that was that's, that, a, that's that a first.
0: It's an under, it's such an underrated point. It's funny. I remember my first professional job was at a vanity press called Trafford Publishing and the CFO of that company was in a company meeting one time and he told this story about how he was about to retire. So I mean, he looked back on his life and he's like, wow, I, guess I I, shit, I did everything I tried to do. I set out to do. And it's like, you're, you're going to do that one way or another. You're going to look back and think, oh, I coulda, shoulda, woulda. And then you will have been what you, you know, or you can be like, set your goals. And set your goal, might as well set your goals high too. Yeah,
1: yeah, I I, I agree. Know, so dream big. Yeah, I thought that was helpful. I think the other thing, and I'll, and I'll sort of... um finish off here soon, but um, I think take internships and take jobs in in things and fields that uh, are interesting to you. So everyone says like, oh, do what you love. And I think that sounds so um, whimsical and awesome, but I actually don't think it's that hard. Um, you know, if you love the outdoors, for example, you don't have to work at a national park to like work in the outdoors. You could work at, you know, uh, a lobbying organization. You could work at the World Wildlife Fund or you could work at REI and like e-commerce at REI, but still like be connected to the outdoors. For me, I really loved energy entertainment. I was a big movie person since I was a kid. Loved movies, loved TV, loved entertainment. Um, And so when I moved to LA, like I wanted to work in entertainment. You know, I saw Entourage. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be like Ari Gold. I was so far from that. But like my first job was in production because I was like, I love this business. I want to work in production. That sounds cool. So I worked on America's Next Top Model. That was my first job, 22. I worked worked in sports production first. And then, um, so I worked at CBS Sports and then worked at America's Next Top Model. I had no... I never even saw the show before. Um, don't tell my old boss or tire of that. But um, I learned a ton. I was there for a year and learned a ton. And I actually learned I didn't want to work in production. And I was like, this is not the job for me. But it was cool to work in that. And then I stayed in entertainment for 10 plus years. I worked at Sony Pictures. I worked at Hulu. I worked at NBC Universal. You know, I stayed in entertainment because that was really exciting. But I worked in D2C and streaming and things that were sort of more cutting edge and more digital. And I really found what I liked. So I thought that was, I think that's another sort of thing is like work in the things that are interesting to you i've always been into apparel and fashion and so like for me to take a job at anina bing at a a fashion company wasn't that far i've always sort of fancied myself a fashionist so you can't see what i'm wearing thank god but you know that's it wasn't that far and so i think i'm still doing that and this is i I love this stuff and what i love is obviously changed a little bit and so i think that's important and then the last thing is just put in the hours i couldn't say that enough like i you know, I've just like working hard and um, working hard. It's like not, that's not the right word, but putting the hours to learn and asking questions and like looking around the room and seeing who's the smartest person in the room and then trying to figure out how they do what they do. You know, never, i never, I wasn't a business major in school. I didn't know how to use Excel when I graduated college. I mean, if now I've learned from people and, you know, hats off to the people who took the time to like teach me a few things here and there and let me like ask them questions. I mean, I'm, I'd say like I'm, you know, better than eighty percent of the MBAs out there. Maybe not that, but like I'm pretty dangerous when it comes to Excel. Never knew how to use it fifteen years ago. Didn't like didn't even have it on my computer probably. And so I think learning, asking questions, staying at the office late. I mean, I was always sort of like. Close to the last person at the office, because there's like so much to do. There's so much to read. There's so much to learn. And I think just like putting in the time, you learn and pick up all that stuff. And I think both like it shows from like a an outside perspective, people see it, and I think they really respect hard work. And I think that's still apparent. And then I think you also learn, and you're gonna be a, you know a machine and a much better sort of employee or a leader later on. Um, so I'd say like putting in the hours and asking the questions. And you know I'd probably thank all the people that I took the time to like teach me things or um, let me let me ask questions whether they're stupid or or not.
0: So, and they fit together because you're going to work hard if you're in this space that you're really interested in. I think about like building this this media company D2C. It's like three we've just been heads down for 3 years. You look up and you're like, "Oh, wow, it's like you you don't it's it's like when it's working, you barely even notice it sometimes because yeah. you're just heads down working away." Yeah. What's your favorite movie?
1: Favorite movie. So, I there's never one and I have like a yeah. rule. I ask that I have like, um, there, there's always like a rotation of probably like three to five, depending on like where I am in my life. Um, okay. there's a few that sort of always stay on there. So like usual suspects is probably like one of my favorite movies of, of all time. Uh, We're, just
0: we might be around the same age because when that came out, that was like my entree to like cool films.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And, um, so I love, love that movie. I think, um, Shawshank Redemption is probably another one that I just like love the story and, and, and love all that. And so I could watch that many times. And then Tommy Boy, just because you got to have something funny in there. And like I, I just Chris Farley was just a genius and I could recite the entire movie. Um, yeah,
0: you could sell me this, these brake pads right now, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, right now. <laughs> it doesn't hurt so much right here or right here, but right
0: here. My go to to that uh, question has always been Rushmore. She's My Rushmore, Max, which is Wes Anderson's second film. Bottle Rocket is his first. If if if, if the audience hasn't seen that, you got to check that out. But it was before he got too wet. I I love Wes Anderson. I still like him, but he's now so Wes Anderson-y. This was when he was just figuring out how to be Wes Anderson. I think it's one of the saddest love stories ever. It's great. Yeah, Jason Schwartzman, right? Um, Yeah, Bill Murray's renaissance there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my other favorite line from that I reference it often is fuck the barracudas. I'm building it anyway, which is how I think about D2C. That's I think that's really wh- where 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 your head's got to be at when you're building a D2C brand is fuck the barracudas. We're building it anyway.
1: Just you should get the sign. Like I'm going to make you the sign. Do we need the sign? I think you need the sign.
0: Uh, I, the I think freedom. I need a sign it says fuck the barracudas. Let's go. Yeah. Awesome. This is a lot of fun, Jacob. Let's uh, let's do this again. Yeah. Anytime. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer.alloneword.co. all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C podcast. We'll see you next time.